Uh, starting a new series today. We're going to start off with this question. Do you ever feel pulled apart by things that you cannot control? Pulled apart. I see some heads already nodding. I haven't even gotten started. Maybe I'll just skip the introduction, right? But there are negative things that pull us apart. Uh, relational things that kind of go south, that pull us apart. The, the world we live in, our differences in ethics and in our moral stands and even our political views tend to pull us apart. And I think at some point all of us have this uh, hesitancy to express an honest opinion for fear of being judged or pushed away or canceled out in some way. The whole idea of togetherness in honesty and in, in our souls seems dangerous and risky because... We live in a world that's pulling us apart. There are inevitable things that pull us apart. Things like aging and sickness and grief pull us apart. We can't control those things. And there are even good things that pull us apart. Positives like a new job. A new school where you say goodbye to your friends. Moving to a new city or a neighborhood. That tends to pull something apart in us. We live in a world where everywhere, everything seems to be pulling us apart. And as a result, we hold back. We're afraid of developing deep relationships And we end up with people who just look like us and sound like us and like what we like and agree with us about things and looking for safety. It's kind of like us for and no more that our world has shrunk to this very small place. And I guess the question I want to ask this morning is, is that the kind of world that Jesus envisioned? Is that his will for us to find ourselves brought into this safe little center? Is that his desire? I don't think it is. In John chapter 17, this is his final prayer for his disciples. He says that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. And after his death on the cross and his resurrection and his ascension, and when the Holy Spirit came to those first believers, 
a new movement of God was entered into the world. It was not the old covenant. It was a new covenant. A new way of living. And this morning we're going to examine the DNA of a movement that pulled people together while the world was trying to pull people apart. And we are a part of that movement of God. And it is God's heart and is his will that we, we practice those things that those folks did in order that they could be together instead of apart. It was a global movement. It began with this small group of people 2,000 years ago. Started with 120. And, and Jesus had started with 12. 12 people from various backgrounds, different status, different education, different political views. And in three years, he brought these men together with, with women around them, 120 of them, Acts 1 says, and they were together. Something the world in that day did not see and something our world rarely sees is people so different coming together with something that actually forms and changes them to be the people they've always wanted to be. And the word that was put to this is the word that's translated in our Bibles, church. It's actually the word ekklesia in the Greek. It simply means a gathering. When you find the word church in the New Testament... It's not thinking about what we think about when we hear the word church. Uh, Probably when you hear the word church, are we going to go to church today? You're thinking of something on 84th Street, likely, or you're at the wrong place, right? (laughs) So, church. Did you know that uh, there were no church buildings before 300 A.D.? This gathering gathered and grew for 300 years and they didn't have any buildings because it was not legal. That there were no pulpits. Now this, I guess, would go for a pulpit. Uh, When you've been to these old churches, you find pulpits are these monstrous big wooden things, sometimes elevated. I, I always say it's 18 inches above contradiction. Uh, that you find there were no pulpits until the ninth century and there were no Bibles in the hands of people until the 15th century when Gutenberg created the printing press. And a pastor was actually a small group leader. The, the, when they've done the reconstruction of the homes of the first century, probably the largest home would hold 40 people. And so our whole idea of church is so far removed from what this gathering in the first century. And I'm afraid we've lost what they had. That we've lost that togetherness. 
And we've lost the power of unity because we've substituted for all these things, buildings and pulpits and, and pastors of mega churches. And we've lost the, the DNA that we just tend to be a form rather than an organism. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, we see this DNA kind of beginning to be laid out in the first century. This is like the beginning of this powerful thing called church or gathering. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. So in one day, they went from 120 to 3,000 because they were all in Jerusalem for this big annual party. They say between 30 and 50,000 visitors came to Jerusalem and Peter preached the gospel and 3,000 of these people from all around the, the Mediterranean world said, I accept this message of Jesus and they were baptized. We don't have details on like where were they baptized Who did the baptism? How long did it take, right? In early July, you might have read about this. Out on the West Coast, Greg Laurie, who is featured in the film Jesus Revolution, at Pirate's Cove on the ocean, they baptized 4,500 people. The, the, The word got out and people lined up. I saw pictures of it. People just standing in line. Now, we're, the baptism we have September 10th, we're not expecting that many. <laughs> but if that were occur, we will accommodate it, okay? We'll figure that out. And so, they believe Christ died on the cross and rose again from the dead. And they were all in. And this is the, the first evidence of this DNA. The movement of God that pulled people together while the world was pulling people apart started with faith in Jesus, followed by baptism. You see, everything changed. When we, when we baptize people over here, if you haven't seen one, there's a tank over here filled with water. But when we baptize with people, it's usually said, buried with Christ in baptism rising to walk in newness of life. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. When those people, those 3,000 were baptized, they were they raised to a whole new life. It wasn't just a ritual. It was a doorway into a new life. It wasn't the end of the journey. It was just the beginning of the journey. That these dear folks, when they scattered throughout the rest of the Roman world after this festival was over, that they carried with them that gospel and they lived it out. And we read the story of their lives as we read the rest of the New Testament. And then in verse 42, it lays out what that life looked like. And they devoted themselves... To the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Four things. 
Four things. I mean, this is written in big print. We don't know what the fine print is on this. But this movement of God that pulled people together while the world was pulling them apart had faith in Jesus followed by baptism, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Let me unpack this a little bit. The apostles' teaching. The Greek word is didache in the Greek. It's used 19 times. No, that's fellowship 19 times. Didache. It's teaching. It's, this teaching was oral. They didn't hand out books. It was oral teaching. And we find that everywhere they went, they did teaching. And the teaching, as we understand from reading the story, was they started with the Old Testament references and moved to the fulfillment of Old Testament in Christ. And they they talked about how the goodness of God goes from the Old Testament to the cross and the resurrection and then on to the revelation of Christ's return. It tended to be more topical than doing an exposition of a particular passage in the Old Testament. When you when you read through the New Testament, you'll find here's an Old Testament verse, here's an Old Testament. You don't find like you might find in churches today, well, we're going to do a study on Psalm 23, and the whole psalm is there. That's not how they did the teaching. They tried to make connections between what Christ did and what God promised and what God said in the Old Testament. There was no format or order given, and sometimes it was short, and one time it went all night. And this is in Acts where a guy fell out of a window, and they thought he was dead, and they went and they prayed over him, and he got up, and they, that wasn't the end of the service. They just went back up and went all night. Uh, it was spirit-led. And just like Christians today, you know, you you have used to have Christian bookstores. Uh, I think you can go to Mardell here and find a few Christian books, along with a lot of other paraphernalia. But uh, you got, they had Christian books in the first century. In fact, if they've done archaeology, They've discovered books that were written in 100, 200, 300 A.D. Books sort of like The Purpose Driven Life that Rick Warren wrote. Books that people like to read, stories about the Bible. And some of them are are like fictional. They're just like us, these first century folks. They're not that different. And yet we have the New Testament that is the authentic and errant story of how God revealed himself and how he moved this small gathering to a global impact that impacts us today and the world. The second thing they had was fellowship, koinonia. The word koinonia is translated fellowship. It's used 19 times in the New Testament. And it's it's not like cookies and punch in the gathering space fellowship. 
It's face to face, heart to heart, intimate connection and sharing. I think we all have experienced at one time or another a, a group of folks that you could really trust and be face to face with and you knew their stuff and they knew your stuff and you loved one each, each other and helped each other out. Well, that's what this gathering was about. It's about lives coming together. We're different, but we're together. We're for each other. We're there in times of need. We, we know you and we are known by you. Here at New Cove, when we began this church, and we continue today, we want to make this type of thing possible in today's world. A small group of people who would come together and be willing to be life to life, face to face with one another. And, and that has been a growth experience for everyone who has committed to that. And be willing to get into a group like that and, and take the risk of saying, I'm going to do that. And just like it transformed these first believers, it transforms people today. When we started New Cove, we, the, the first year we had an all-church retreat. There weren't that many of us. We and all of our kids went to Camp Kataki out east here of Lincoln. And we brought in a a pastor friend from Fort Worth, a guy named Harold Bullock, who came in to kind of guide us through the weekend. He had been a part of, of helping start churches around the country. And so Harold arrived. He stayed with Mary and I before we went, got to Camp Kataki, and his luggage didn't come in. And Harold is kind of a big guy like me. I found out he's a little bigger uh, than me. But he, his luggage didn't come in. And I said, well, I have some clothes you can wear. And he said, okay. And he did all weekend. And that yellow sweater never fit me the same after Harold wore it. (laughs) But I remember as he left, he said, well, you know, you've heard the phrase, don't criticize someone until you've walked a mile in their shoes. He said, I've changed that. Don't criticize someone until you've lived a week in their underwear. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. It never dawned on me to go to Sears and Penny's and buy him XXLs, you know. Uh, wow. That, that's koinonia, folks. Don't try that at home, okay? The third thing they had was the breaking of bread. And uh, this is kind of amplified in verse 47 of Acts 2. It said, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with, sincere, with glad and sincere hearts. Isn't that a great phrase? Glad and sincere hearts. Having a meal together. And it was during that time of breaking bread that they most likely did what Jesus did at his last supper as he as they broke bread, they had communion, they re- and he forecast what he was going to do, and we remember what he did. Today, when we take communion, that his body was broken for our brokenness, and his blood was shed for our forgiveness. 
In 2000, Mary and I were in Hong Kong and were visiting uh, some friends there, Scott and Debbie Smith. I don't know if you know them, but they had been involved in helping some local Chinese folks find Jesus. And we happened to be there on Easter Sunday. And so Sunday, we had a little time of praise and prayer in one of the apartments in Hong Kong. And then we went to a local restaurant. We were around a large table. Our memory, and we're trying to get our memories together on this. Uh, the table probably sat 18 people, a huge round table with one of those big lazy Susans in it that you could turn around. There's nothing like eating Chinese food in Hong Kong, folks. If you have a chance, go do it. It's life-changing. And uh, so we had finished the meal, and Debbie... Gets, pulls a bottle of grape juice out of her purse and a little loaf of bread. And she said to these brand new believers, we've never done this before. But when Jesus, his last, and she told the story of his last supper. And they were leaning in as she told the story. And we, she had little glasses there, and they thought it strange she only poured about this much in each glass, right? And we took communion around that table. As Mary and I reflected on this, it's like, what a privilege. What a privilege in the year 2000, 2000, to sit with first-time believers and have them enjoying the fellowship together of breaking bread and then remembering what Jesus did. That's what they did. That's the DNA. This is what they practiced. And I hope in your small group that there will be a time when you break bread in a small group And somebody pulls something out of their cabinet, the juice and the bread. And you remember what Christ has done for you. And then it says prayer. This is prosekimai in the Greek. It means out loud prayer. It wasn't silent prayer. It was out loud prayer. Remember when we first moved to Nebraska in 1972... And we'd seen students at UNL come to faith in Christ. We had a little training thing in our basement on a rental house on South 49th Street. And there were probably 20, 30 UNL students there. And uh, we were doing teaching and helping them. And Mary had prepared a meal upstairs. And I said, uh, we're going to have a meal upstairs. And so before we go upstairs... Jim, would you lead us in prayer? Jim Katsinas, you might know him. He and Ramona were here for years, and they go to a church in Ashland now. And Jim said, um, I don't pray in public. It's like, ooh, okay. Uh, all right. Jerry, would you pray? And there's this long silence, you know. You can just feel the heat going up in the room. And Jerry said, Thank you, God, for beagle puppies. Amen. <laughs> I asked Jerry, after, as we were in line to get to eat, I said, Jerry, what was that all about? 
He said, I couldn't think of anything else. I just went, <laughs> I, I just went blank. I learned that praying out loud is really tough. I call it breaking the sound barrier. That uh, to say something out loud, that, that that's really tough. And I, as I was preparing this, I also had this thought of the past and then this thought of the present. In the past with these college students, it'd be like, so does anyone have any prayer requests? Say, I have a test on Friday, pray for me. It's like, okay, 18, 20-year-old, we'll pray for that. In our group now, 60-year-old, I have a test on Friday, would you pray for me? (laughs) It's like, some things just never change, right? But learning to pray out loud, these folks learn to pray out loud. Look at Acts chapter 4, 24 and then 31. They, were, they had taken in some of these early leaders and they had, they had gotten them in trouble with the Jewish authorities and they had beaten them. And they came back together and they said when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And here's a quote here. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Consider their threats. And enable your servants to speak the word with great boldness. Wow. It's not keep them safe. No, it's like help them to be bold. And then it says 31. And they, after they prayed, the place where they were, they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. They learn to pray out loud together and ask God to do things that humanly could not have been done. I want to wrap this up by ending up on the word devoted. The word devoted is proskereteo. And that word, you know, we have one, we use one word devoted. And when you look at a Greek lexicon or dictionary, you find that the Greek has such depth of meaning compared to one English word. And and that Greek word has the meaning of to continue to do something with intense effort, with the possible implication of difficulty. They were devoted to these four things. And they knew it was going to be difficult. They knew it would be difficult. When we came here in 72, one of the first people I met was Tom Osborne, and we started FCA with athletes at UNL together. And that first year, and Tom doesn't remember this story, even though I remember it vividly, I said to him, because we were playing Oklahoma that year, I said, Tom, Oklahoma's come to town, we have some relatives that are coming, and they have us, they got us tickets. Uh, to the game, what would you think if I rooted for Oklahoma this week? And there was like a silence. And he said, I'll give you one year of grace. Well, that's all it took because we got to know the coaches, their wives, we got to know the players, had them in our home. Back then you could do that. And the players were not like isolated into their own little world. 
They were just normal students who played ball. And I remember one year, uh, I don't remember what year it was, because we've been devoted to Nebraska football now for 50 years. And uh, let me explain what devoted means. One year we played Oklahoma, and it was zero degrees on the thermometer, and there was snow in the stadium on the ground. It wasn't snowing, but there was that lovely wind from Canada <laughs> that put the temperature at 20 below wind chill. And did Mary and I question, are we going to go to the game? No. The question was, what are we going to wear to the game? You can only put on so many clothes, okay? So we put on everything we could put on and still be able to sit down, okay? And we took a, each of us took a sleeping bag. And we stood on the snow with a slick sleeping bag, not the smartest thing we've ever done, standing in it and pulling it up to here. In front of us, and this is pretty memorable, were three guys that weren't wearing shirts. <laughs> they had had some antifreeze, I suppose. And during... I, I didn't want to ask them any questions. You know how that is. Uh, during the game, they would go, LSU, LSU. It's like, what? Well, they left before halftime, thankfully, because it's quite a distraction. And by the way, we did beat Oklahoma that game and uh, made it all worth it. But we were devoted to that. And I wonder what you might be devoted to. What might there be in your life that it's not if we're going to do it, but how are we going to do it? When are we going to do it? I think for these first century believers, they were devoted to four things. That it was not even a question. We're going to be devoted to the teaching. We're going to be devoted to the fellowship. We're going to be devoted to breaking bread together. And we're going to be devoted to prayer. And they were. Now, we look, look back over 2,000 years of history and say, good for them. But my statement today is it's good for you, too. Because if we're going to experience what they experienced and have the joy and sincerity and gladness that they experienced, we need to figure out how to devote ourselves to those four things because they're all available today. It, it comes in different form, but it's there for us to dive into. So this movement of God that pulled people together while the world was pulling them apart had these five things. Faith in Jesus, followed by baptism, apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And they became a generous community, a worshiping community, and a hopeful community. And that's what this series we're going to be teaching on the next few weeks is all about.
And the result of it here, last verse, Acts 2.46, it says, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Do you know what happens when, when believers devote themselves to these four things? And they go all in. And they, they make room in their lives and their schedules. And they, they push aside distractions that, and, and deal with the inconvenience of these four things. Do you know what happens? Is that the Lord adds to their number daily those who are being saved. So for the last 2,000 years, this has been going on. And it's been going on here in this church. And we hope that it will go on even deeper this fall. As you have a chance to reorganize your life and reorganize your schedule, that you will say, we've got to make room for this in our lives. And when you go out in the gathering space, there are three phrases on the walls out there if you look up. It talks about genuine faith, authentic relationships, and meaningful impact. And that's exactly what the New Covenant first century church looked like. It was a community that practiced these things. We're going to take communion here in a moment. They're going to pass the elements, and you just keep the elements. And the band has put together a song that really reflects our heart and our desire for what New Covenant will be in this next season of our life together. So enjoy the song and listen to the words and contemplate in your heart whatever the Lord might have told you today.